Great to see you here at the EU Bible Seminar. If I haven't met you before, my name's Rowan and I'm one of the people who work on the EU staff team. Uh, just get your mind thinking. I realise it's you know, only 12 o'clock, middle of the day. Just quick mental arithmetic. How many hours have you been awake today? Just try to think, what time did you wake up? It's now about 12. Right, you've worked that out. You know, I, I've done this exercise with humanities students and they pull out calculators to work this out, but I'm sure you can do this quickly. Right, now in the hours that you've been awake today, think about all the things that you've done in that time. You had breakfast or you didn't have breakfast. You had your coffee or your two coffees or whatever it is to get you going and you've been to your lectures or your tutes or whatever else you've done today. You caught the public transport. You're, you were doing the things of life. And in doing all the things of life, did the one true living God speak to you today? Did God say anything to you in your, the hours since you woke up this morning? Because honestly, most of my days just feel like that image. It's just, you just get through the day. There's the people you meet and the things that you do and you get up in place A and you go to place B and you just get through life and I don't have a particular sense that at any particular time the one true living God is sort of turning up and speaking to me, Rowan. It just feels like a day and maybe that's how today feels like for you. It just feels like a day. If God did show up, if God did sort of suddenly appear and speak to you, I wonder what that would actually be like. And I wonder what he would say. And I wonder how you would respond. Those are the questions that we're thinking about a little bit today as we look at the book of Exodus, chapters 3 and 4. Exodus is the second book in the Christian Bible, and we started to look at it a little bit just before Easter, and we're going to continue that today. But those are the sort of questions. What is it like when God shows up? What, does he, what would he have to say? How might you respond to that? That's what we're going to be looking at today. Because Moses, who's the guy who we meet in Exodus chapters 3 and 4, Moses was not used to having God speak to him. Moses was just going about his life. Now, Moses, by the time we meet him in Exodus chapter 3, is a middle-aged man. Right? He's, he's more like me than you. That is, he's closer to my age than to your age. He was just living his life. He, his job was to look after the herds for his father-in-law. So he's working in the family business, as it were. He's done so for decades. Married, got some kids. He's just living his life. And then God shows up. And God speaks to him. And so that's the, bit, the episode that we're going to look at today in Exodus chapter 3 and 4. So if you've got your Bible, you could open it up to Exodus chapter 3 and 4, or maybe call it up on your phone. If you've got a Bible app, or just go to BibleGateway.com, call it up. Because it's helpful to sort of look through this encounter that happens. And whilst these, just to sort of fill you in in the background, you might remember, the book of Exodus, second book in the Christian Bible, at this particular point in history... God's Old Testament people, the nation of Israel, were not in the land that he had promised them, the land of Canaan. They were actually, as a nation, enslaved, sort of uh, captured in Egypt. And they were slaves in Egypt. But God has made a promise to draw them out of Egypt and take them to the land that he had promised, the land of Canaan. And the book of Exodus is the story of how that happens. 
as we're going to look at Exodus chapters 3 and 4, we're going to learn a bit about Moses and there'll be things that we might learn about Moses here that you may well resonate with. But actually the person we learn the most about in these two chapters is the one true living God. We're going to learn two things in particular about the one true living God from these particular chapters. The first thing that we're going to learn is that the one true living God, the only God who really exists, this God appears and speaks. Now that's not to be taken for granted. There's no sort of necessary reason that the one true living God, that he would necessarily appear to people. There's no, no necessary reason that he would actually speak to people. He could just be there in absent silence, right? But no, the one true living God is the sort of God who appears and speaks. But what's actually more important than just that he appears and speaks is what does he have to say? See, it could be that the one true living God, whenever he appeared and spoke, all he did was drop a joke on you. That would sort of be interesting, wasn't it? The only time God ever turned up, he would turn up, drop this joke on you and disappear. Imagine if that's what God was like, that he just dropped a joke and, and never said anything else other than just a joke. Here's another mad joke for you. Boom. Disappear. That's not what the one true living God does. What's more important than that he appears and speaks, which is important enough, but what's more important is, well, what does he have to say? What does he actually speak? And that's what we're going to look at. So have a look at Exodus chapter 3. Let me read out to you the first little bit of this account. Chapter 3, verse 1. Now Moses was tending the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law, the priest of Midian, and he led the flock to the far side of the desert and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. If you uh, read on in the account, you'll see that Horeb, this mountain, also has another name known as Mount Sinai. And if you read on in the Exodus story, you know that Mount Sinai becomes pretty important in the story because it's the place where when God does rescue his people out of slavery in Egypt, he brings them to Mount Sinai or Mount Horeb. Anyway, Moses obviously hasn't lived through that part of the story yet. Moses is there by chance at Horeb. Here he is at Horeb or Mount Sinai. There, verse 2, the angel of the Lord appeared to him in flames of fire from within a bush. Moses saw that though the bush was on fire, it did not burn up. Now, little note, if you've got your Bible open there or you're looking at it, have the editors of your Bible put a convenient heading above this section? Yes? What's the, what's the head? Just someone just read out the heading that you've got. All the editors might choose different things. Someone read out what you've got. Moses and the burning bush. Anyone got something a bit different? Even slightly different? No, it's all sort of the same. What's the obvious problem with that heading? Sorry, say it loudly. The bush is actually not burning. Isn't that what we just read in verse 2? Have they not read the text? Anyway, I don't know. But the thing was, Moses saw that though the bush was on fire, it did not burn up. This is the story about Moses and the non-burning bush. That's what made it interesting. The bush wasn't burning. It looked like it was on fire, but it wasn't actually burning. And so Moses, because he's a good STEM student, has been many, many science labs. He goes, verse 3, so Moses thought, I will go over and investigate this strange site. He goes over, I will look at this strange site, why the bush does not burn up. 
He goes over. Here's this burning bush, but it's not actually burning. What's going on? When the Lord saw that he had gone over to look, God called to him from within the bush, Moses, Moses. And Moses said, here I am. Do not come any closer, God said. Take off your sandals, for the place where you are standing is holy ground. Then he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. At this Moses hid his face, because he was afraid to look at God. The Lord said, I have indeed seen the misery of my people in Egypt. I've heard them crying out because of their slave drivers, and I am concerned about their suffering. So I have come down to rescue them from the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land into a good and spacious land, a land flowing with milk and honey, the home of the Canaanites, Hittites, Amorites, Perizzites, Hivites and Jebusites. And now the cry of the Israelites has reached me and I have seen the way the Egyptians are oppressing them. So now go, I'm sending you to Pharaoh to bring my people, the Israelites, out of Egypt. So what is the one true living God like? He's the God who appears, who speaks. And when he speaks, what does he say? He doesn't drop a joke. No, what he does is he reveals something about himself. I think if you look carefully at what God says here in verse 5, verse 6, verse 7 to 9, verse 10, you can see things that God is revealing about himself in each of those verses. So what I want you to do on your tables is just have a look through these verses. What does God reveal about himself in verse 5, in verse 6, in verse 7 to 9, and verse 10? I'm going to give you five minutes just to work on that together and see what you can come up with. All right, let's have a chat about this, see how you went. What did you find out from verse 5? What did God, what does God reveal about himself in verse 5? Any suggestions? Have a stab. Throw it out there. Take a risk. He is holy. Now, holy just means special, set apart, different to everything else. Uh, And it's true, the Bible tells us that the one true living God is holy. He is unlike anything else that he has made. Everything else that exists, cats, you, time-space continuum, everything else is in the created box. And he alone is in the uncreated box. He's unlike anything else. He is Holy, separate, different. Does the verse 5 actually tell you God is holy? No. Someone's shaking their head. What's holy in verse 5? The ground is holy. This particular bit of ground that Moses is walking on is holy. So this particular piece of ground is set apart, special. What's made it special? What makes this ground different to every other piece of ground that Moses was walking on? That God is there. This is, the, this is the location, the particular point in time and space where the one true living God is making himself manifest, where he's appearing. That makes this space special, holy. Now, if you know the rest of the story in the Bible, you'll know that the ultimate place that the one true living God reveals himself is not in a non-burning bush. The ultimate place God reveals himself is actually in the person of Jesus of Nazareth. There is another holy space, a particular person in whom God the Son takes on flesh, as we're going to explore at annual conference. And that is where God appears ultimately to all of us. That 
That is holy, special, because that's where God reveals himself. So yes, we learn about the holiness of God and his appearing in verse 5. We learn something about God there. What about verse 6? What did God reveal about himself in verse 6? Anything? He's the God of his ancestors. He's the God of Moses' ancestors, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Yes. Work with that. What does that tell you about God? He's old. God is old. That is, the generations change, but God stays the same. Yes, he is constant. We are not. Yeah. But why did he pick Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob? Why didn't he say the God of Adam, Noah, and Seth? Why would he pick Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob? Is there any significance there? What might that be? What's significant about Abraham? Yes, so the covenant that was established back in the book of Genesis was with Abraham and then reiterated to Isaac and Jacob. So when God appears and says, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob, he's saying, I am the God who makes promises, who establishes a relationship with people and then acts in faithfulness to those very promises. I am the God of the covenant. So he's revealing something about himself here. He's not just saying, oh, by the way, I had a chat with Abraham once upon a time and now I'm having a chat with you. He's actually communicating something about his character. He's the God who makes these promises, these covenant relations, establishes these covenant relationships. What about verse 7 to 9? Did you get anything out of that? What does God reveal about himself in verse 7 to 9? That he cares for his people. He cares for his people. How did you get that? Yeah, he's heard, he's heard what's going on. Do you, you remember if you were here before the Easter break, um, we were looking at an overview of, verse, of chapters 1 to 6, and you remember we talked about what the one true living God is like as we looked at chapters 1 to 6, and I focused on four verbs. I drew your attention to a particular verse in chapter, a couple of verses in chapter 2 and talked about four key verbs about the one true living God. He, I had actions that went with them too. Anyone remember? Some of you are smiling. Some of you are. What, what is it about the one true living He hears. He hears what? The crickets? The cries. He hears the cries of he hears the cries of his people. He hears your cries. He hears those cries. He remembers his promises to you in the Lord Jesus. He sees your situation and he knows what that's like. That's what the one true God is like. He hears your cries. He remembers his promises to you. He sees your situation and he knows what that means. That is what he is like. And you see that reiterated here in verses 7 to 9. He's telling Moses, I've seen what's going on for my people and now I'm going to do something about it because I've remembered my promises. What about verse 10? Verse 10 might be the trickiest, but it's not that tricky. What, what does God reveal? What do you learn about the one true living God in verse 10? He's got a plan. He has a plan. That's certainly true from verse 10. Yes, God has a plan. It's not just sort of random events happening. He's got a plan that he's actioning. Yeah, what else? What is that plan in verse 10? 
to rescue his people, right? Now, think about this for a moment. The one true living God, as he reveals himself in the Bible, he's incredibly powerful. I mean, the God as revealed in the Bible is creates the whole universe out of nothing. There is nothing and then he brings it. Like that is incredibly powerful. So wouldn't it be true that the one true living God, if he wanted to, he could just click his metaphorical non-existent fingers, right? He could click them and just Star Trek his people from Egypt into Canaan. You know, just sort of beam me up Scotty-like. Like just take them and zap them all and dump them in Canaan. He could do that, couldn't he? And if you, if you think, well, maybe he can't. Well, actually he could because if you've ever read the story about Philip in the book of Acts, actually Philip who's one of Jesus' disciples, talks about an experience where actually that's what happened to him. Like he just, he suddenly was in one place and then God zapped him and he suddenly was in another place. Like it's fully weird, right? So, but God can actually do that. So what he could have done that to the people of Israel. He could have just snapped his fingers, so to speak, and just moved them all and bingo, there they are in the land of Canaan. It's all done. Why doesn't God, if he can do that, why doesn't he do it? What you see in verse 10 is the one true living God chooses to work through people. He says to Moses, go, I'm sending you to Pharaoh. He, choo- he doesn't have to. He deliberately chooses to work through people. That might make you ask the question, why? why? Why would God do that? Like, if he doesn't have to, why would he? And we're going to come back and try to think about that question, actually. Why does he do that? So notice here, you get quite a lot about who the one true living God is just from those couple of verses. Different things you can draw out by reflecting on of actually what is the one true living God like? Now we've got to ask the question, why does God turn up and reveal something about himself to Moses? Notice here, Moses doesn't take the initiative. It's not that Moses was, was just standing there going, I wonder what God is like and then sort of making it up. This is all on God's initiative. God turns up and decides to reveal himself to Moses. Why would he choose to do that? The answer is because God reveals something of himself because he wants a relationship with Moses. He reveals these things to you because he wants a relationship with you. That's why God chooses to reveal himself. If he just turned up and dropped a joke on you every time, you wouldn't learn much about him, except maybe you would sort of assume that he wants us to laugh. And I think God does want us to laugh, but he wants more than just for you to laugh. He wants you to have a relationship with him. So he reveals something about himself so you can enter into that relationship. Now, I don't know if you can imagine being in Moses' situation. There's Moses. Remember, he's just doing, he's just looking after the sheep. God turns up, speaks to him out of this bush. How would you respond if this had been you? So imagine this for a moment. This afternoon, you finish your time at uni, you're on your way home. So you've got it off the bus or the train or whatever it is and you're just sort of doing that final walk up just up those final suburban streets to your house or apartment or whatever it is. You're just wandering up the street, listening to whatever you're listening to and you just notice across the road in that, that yard there, there is a bush that is on fire. Fire! And you look around and there is no, for whatever street, there is no one else on the street. Just weird. You're sort of, oh, no, it's on fire and, and you look at it again. Actually, it's not burning. There's flames, there's, but no smoke. Like it just, what, it's not actually burning. You look, would you go over and have a look? You probably would. You'd wander over, you'd be close to it. You'd actually, go, yeah, as you get close to it, suddenly this voice comes out of the bush. 
insert your name here, right? Rowan, Rowan. I'm sort of looking around, I'm looking for the little UE boom box to sort of see who's playing a prank on me at this point. Like, what that, what's going on? But Rowan, Rowan. Here I am. Rowan, this is the one true living God. I am sending you to ScoMo. Go to Canberra and tell the Prime Minister, blah, 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 insert whatever the message of God is to ScoMo, right? Imagine that actually happened to you this afternoon on your way home. You're there, the bush burning, not burning, voice, go to Canberra. What would you do? What would you do this afternoon if that happened to you? Would you just go, okay, this is just too weird, I'll just, just run away? Would you text a friend super fast? <laughs> would you turn around and go to the airport and get on a plane? Would you head to Canberra? Would you do it? What would you do if this was you, if God turned up and spoke to you? Now, I don't know about your picture of Moses, whether you imagine, I mean, the Bible tells us Moses was the, the greatest of the Old Testament prophets, the only one who sort of saw God face to face, right? So you, we have this sort of exalted view of Moses, but actually when you read the actual account, you realize Moses was not always that great. In fact, often wasn't, but an in particular, what you realize in these chapters is Moses is super reluctant. Even though he has this amazing experience, he is super reluctant to be obedient to what God says to do. In chapter 3, verse 10, go, I'm sending you to Pharaoh. Moses is super reluctant. But what you realize here is we actually learn something not just about Moses, but something about God. That the one true living God is the God who delights to work through weak people like Moses and like you, like me. God delights to work through you. Now, why? We'll come to that in a moment. But let's think about Moses, the super reluctant Moses. He has, can you believe it, five excuses that he tries to run with God, hoping that something's going to get him out of having to go to speak to Pharaoh. Five excuses. The first one is, I can't do this. Chapter 3, verse 11, you can see there, but Moses said to God, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the Israelites out of Egypt? He says, I, I'm just looking after the sheep, man. I, like, I am not the guy you need to be sending to Pharaoh. Look at me. Who am I to do this? And this might be a point where actually you resonate with Moses. Who am I? I, I can't, I'm not one of those crazy Christians who can wear a green EU t-shirt on the train and just like a round cap. I, I'm not one of those guys. That's, who am I? I'm not one of those people who could talk to my non-Christian friends and invite them to read the Bible. I like, that's not me. I, who am I to do that? I couldn't possibly go and change churches and live in a less reached, less resourced area of Sydney or somewhere else in Australia. And I mean, other people might be able to do that. That's good if they, but who am I? I couldn't possibly do that. Or who am I? I, I couldn't go and become a missionary in another country. I mean, I, I couldn't possibly learn Swahili and and live my whole life in another culture and another language and tell people about Jesus and I, who am I? I can't do that. Who am I, God? So this is Moses' first excuse. Now, very interestingly, if you're ever chatting to somebody and you know they say, oh, I've got this exam coming up, I'm just super stressed about it. What is your normal response if a friend says to you, oh, I'm super stressed about it, I don't think I can do this. What's your response? Our response is almost always, no, you're right. You've got zero hope. 
No, we never say that, right? That's not what our response. What's our response? Our response is, nah, you can do this. You'll be right. You'll be fine. Right? That's just because we've all bought into our therapeutic culture. Right? We've all just bought into it. And all we just do is say to people, yeah, yeah, you're, act you're great, actually. So cute. You guys, you're just awesome. You're just like, you're great. You're, the, you're, the, you're fine. That's not God's approach here when Moses says, but who am I? I can't do this. God doesn't say, nah, Moses, you're tops, man. Absolutely, you can do this. God's response, interestingly, and, and more profoundly, God's response is to tell Moses something more about God, something more about himself. So that Moses' confidence isn't in himself. Moses' confidence is actually in God. So God reveals more about himself. Have a look at chapter 3, verse 12. And God said, I will be with you. That's the solution to Moses' feeling of inadequacy. I will be with you. You know, those moments where you might maybe do feel inadequate for the things you might think God wants you to do. The solution isn't, no, you can do it. The solution is, hold on to Jesus' promises. I will never leave you or forsake you. The God who takes up, who makes his personal presence right there in you by his spirit, who takes up residence within you by his spirit. I will be with you is the answer to our feeling of inadequacy. And you might think, okay, so that should have settled Moses' nerves. And then he turns around and heads off to Egypt. But no, Moses has more excuses. He has a second excuse. This time it's, well, can you do this, God? Are you actually up for this? You might be with me, but can you pull it off? Have a look at verse 13 of chapter 3. Moses said to God, suppose I go to the Israelites and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you. And they ask me, what is his name? What Then what shall I tell them? In the ancient world, to know the name of a god was to know something of the god's power and character. Right? If you knew the god's name, then it gave you access to his power and character. You knew something about him. And Moses is saying here, if I go back to the Israelites as slaves in Egypt and say, look, the one true living God has sent me to you, we're going to get delivered. They'll say, well, what's his name? What, what's his power? What's his, tell us about him. Can he really pull this off? And notice God's response. God's response again is to reveal something about himself to Moses. Chapter 3, verse 14, God said to Moses, I am who I am. This is what you are to say to the Israelites. I am has sent me to you. I've got a footnote there that says it could be translated as I will be who I will be. So God reveals his name. I am who I am. So just think about that phrase for a moment. I am who I am or I will be who I will be. What does that phrase communicate to you? How does that speak to you? What's the vibe you get from that? What does it say to you about God? So I want you to discuss it on your table. Got only got about 90 seconds. Talk about what just, no right or wrong answer here on this one. I'm just interested in the impression that name leaves with you. I am who I am, or I will be who I will be. Have a chat for 90 seconds. Okay, so any suggestions? I am who I am. I will be who I will be. What, would, what did that sort of communicate to you? What did you pick up from that? Anything? Any impression? He's a joker. He's a joker? Why is that? <laughs> Why is that? Like if you ask any other person, what's your name? He's like, I am who I am. Like, what would you kind of say? Like they're kind of, it feels like they're not really revealing that much to you. It's like them saying, just watch me. Just watch me. Yeah. 
That's interesting. There is something here about his absolute freedom, I think. He has absolute freedom. Like He, he is just going to be who he's going to be. And he's not defined by anything else. He's, he's not contingent, dependent upon anything else. He has complete, unencumbered freedom. I will be who I will be. I am who I am. It's, it's, it's almost like a statement of absolute power, isn't it? Absolute power, absolute freedom. It's very interesting then when you get through to the person of Jesus Christ in whom this God reveals himself ultimately, there's a moment in Jesus' ministry where he says to those standing around him, he said, before Abraham was, I am. He deliberately identifies himself with this one true living God. He claims the I am for himself. He claims to be that God. This is who God is. I am who I am. I will be who I will be. Even though Moses now has this name of God, which God has not revealed up to this point to any of his people. He didn't reveal this to Moses, didn't reveal it to Jacob or Isaac. He's revealed this to Moses. That is not enough for Moses. Moses' excuses continue. But then they might not believe me, he says. Chapter 4, verse 1, you can see Moses answered, What if they do not believe me or listen to me and say, The Lord did not appear to you? And so God then gives them, him uh, some signs of God's power, some miracles to be able to perform to, to demonstrate that actually he has been sent by this great I am who I am God. He has these signs of power to do. That's not enough for Moses. Moses then comes back to God again in chapter 4, verse 10, and says, look, but I just don't have the skills for this. And maybe you resonate with this. Chapter 4, verse 10, Moses says to the Lord, O Lord, I have never been eloquent, neither in the past, nor since you have spoken to your servant. I am slow of speech and tongue, which sounds pretty eloquent. Anyway, the way that's been translated for us, that. Literally, he says, I am heavy of speech and tongue. The scholars tell us that probably means that he had some sort of speech impediment. He may, maybe it was a stutter. Maybe he just he actually was not a good public speaker. He's the guy in the room who, when you say, we need somebody to stand up and present to the class, he's not the guy you choose. But God has chosen him. Out of all the people God could choose, why would he choose the guy with a speech impediment? to go and present and speak in front of Pharaoh, to be God's mouthpiece to Pharaoh. Why would God do that? Why would he choose somebody who so obviously, according to us anyway, doesn't have the skills, doesn't have the gifts for it? What is God's purpose here? Well, it's interesting God's response, God's response there in verse 11 of chapter 4, he reveals something again about himself. The Lord said, who gave man his mouth? Who makes him deaf or mute? Who gives him sight or makes him blind? Is it not I, the Lord? Now go, I will help you speak and will teach you what to say. So God reveals two things there. First of all, Moses, you are exactly as I have made you. This is, hasn't caught God by surprise. It's not like he went, Oh, yeah. Oh, my, no. Mo oh, sorry, Moses. You don't fit this job description at all. <laughs> Please forgive me. I'll go and find somebody. No, Moses is exactly as God has made him. And secondly, he says, I will help you. It's God who shows his power expressed in our weakness. If you read through the rest of the Bible and you get to 1 Corinthians chapter 1, uh, the Apostle Paul, talking about the Christian community, says, think about what you were like when you became Christians. Not many of you were impressive, he says. Not many of you were of noble birth. But he says, God chooses the weak 
things in the world, speaking about me and you. He chooses the weak things in the world. Why, he says? To shame the strong. That he shows his great power by choosing to work through you and your weakness. So you might say, I don't, have the, I don't know all the answers that, to, to what my friend's questions about Christianity. I, I couldn't possibly say, hey, do you want to read the Bible? I wouldn't know how to answer their questions. Like, I, I don't have the skills for that. And yet God shows his great power by using you in that situation. He delights to use you to show because it shows his power by using the weak. Well, Moses, that's not even enough comfort for Moses. Moses then finally just gets, he's getting desperate and he's getting down to it. Chapter 4, verse 13, he just says, just please, I don't want to do it. But Moses said, oh Lord, please send somebody else to do it. And interestingly, at this point, God has given him, he's appeared in this bush, he's spoken to him, he's given, revealed all these things about himself. And at this point, God gets angry with Moses. Because he's been given so much here, and yet Moses still is unwilling to be obedient to what God wants him to do. God gets angry, but interestingly, he also, in his compassion, accommodates Moses' reluctance by saying, your relative Aaron, I will use him with you. This is who God is. He appears, he speaks, he reveals things about himself, and he delights to work through our weakness to show his great strength. You might think, well... All of that's well and good, but I still wouldn't mind having the burning bush moment so that God could actually just speak directly to me and tell me what I need to do. That would sort of be cool. Well, I guess you've never had a burning bush moment, but then you sort of have because this book, this Bible, isn't this your non-burning bush? Isn't this where God, the one true living God, speaks to you? And isn't this actually where he says more to you than Moses ever received at the non-burning bush? You know, you might think, oh, I'd love to be in Moses' shoes and have that direct moment. But let me tell you, Moses would have preferred to be actually in your shoes because you know more about the one true living God than Moses ever did because you're on the other side of Jesus of Nazareth. You have seen the ultimate revelation of the one true living God in the person of Jesus as Nazareth, captured here in these words, this living word of God to you. Here's your non-burning bush. The question is, what are you going to do about it? Are you going to make excuses? Or are you going to trust God's revelation of himself to you? I will be with you. That's what he says. So we're going to close with some prayer, I think. Yes? We're going to... uh, yes. Great. <laughs> Let's close. Who's going to pray? 